if you don't give them the messaging more often than not in China, they'll kind of create their own messaging. That's one difficult thing to do. They still really appreciate the in-person, even the town halls. They're very much looking for those. So we're kind of taking baby steps to really get to the level that they're expecting. Welcome to the Commons Coffee Club podcast, where we bring you fascinating insights and conversations with communications leaders from across Fortune 500, FTSE 100, and leading global financial and professional services firms. I'm your host, Max Forsyth, founder and managing director of Comm Search and Selection, specialist in-house communications executive search and recruitment firm based in the UK, but covering the UK and US markets. Hi, and welcome to this week's Comms Coffee Club episode with the wonderful Stephanie Roberts. Stephanie joins us from the lovely Japan, uh, although she's got 15 years of corporate communications experience working in the US uh, and the formerly mentioned Japan. She's currently head of brand and communications for Hitachi. Uh, and prior to that, uh, spent a long time at Seller, who Hitachi bought. And she was at Lochner prior to that. We have a really great conversation around all things brand communications, what it's like living and working in both the US and Japan, uh, and the differences um, in culture and nuance, uh, and and how to get your audience and tone right in Western cultures such as the US, UK, and Europe versus Eastern cultures, including Japan, China, and what works best, uh, both from a external communications and PR perspective, but also looking at the internal communication side and employee engagement. So there are some really fascinating insights here for anyone uh, who is working in a global communications role or who aspires to work in global communications. So hope you like it. And yeah, don't forget to like and subscribe and follow wherever you like to consume the podcast. Stephanie Roberts, welcome to the Commerce Coffee Club podcast. Thank you so much for having me today, Max. I really appreciate it. Absolutely not a problem. And, and you're joining us all the way from sunny Japan today, or is it a bit rainy? Today it was sunny. Yeah, maybe about 50 degrees and sunny. So a nice winter day here. Certainly nice in the UK, which has been very rainy and wet and damp over the last few days. So uh, kind of roll on spring here. Oh, well, I'll try to send some sun your way. Yeah, cheers. Thank you very much. So look, really looking forward to this. Uh, for everyone listening and watching, yeah, Stephanie Roberts is a great and really highly experienced communications professional, currently uh, living and working out in Japan for Hitachi, but originally from the US. So why don't we wind the clock all the way back and um, how did you get into communication? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, I kind of started from my college days. Uh, so when I went to college, I started as a business major, thinking I would go into accounting. And then I kind of quickly realized that I don't particularly enjoy doing my own budget. So why would I enjoy <laughs> you know, doing a company budget? So after a year or so, I switched gears. I talked to some of the career counselors, you know, kind of figured out what I'm passionate about. And they geared me towards communications. And kind of the rest is history. So I changed my major to communications. And then most of my entire career now has been in communications, except for probably my first job, 
where I was more of a marketing coordinator and doing more uh, like proposal work, business development work. But after that, then I really fell into communications. And where was your first communications gig? So actually at the first company I worked at, it was a civil engineering company. So I started there as a marketing coordinator, and then I moved into the corporate communications department after two years. Nice. Great. And that was civil engineering in the U.S.? and uh... Yeah, in the U.S. called H.W. Lochner. So they're um, only in the U.S., but a national engineering firm in the U.S. And what did engineering uh, comms look like back in the day? What was it? And what was your day to day like? Yeah. So, I mean, at that time, it was a very small department. I think there were three or four of us on the team. Um, but the president did have a focus on communications. And, um, you know, I remember writing some of the executive messages just as a very junior communications person and working on some of the annual reports and such. Um, so I think that really set a nice foundation for the rest of my career. And then where did you go to next? So then after that, I moved to a law firm, uh, Neil Gerber Eisenberg. They're headquartered in Chicago, um, one office, but about 150 attorneys or so. So another national company um, that that was kind of a marketing communications role. I was doing corporate communications, but also some of the other, uh, you know, more marketing communications tasks. So that was another learning experience. So again, professional services, but uh, the legal industry. Yeah, going from engineering to legal and um, yeah, working with lawyers. I don't think it matters where in the world you work with lawyers and doing communications for them is is interesting. Uh, yes, it was a very challenging role. Um, like you said, attorneys are very uh, detail-oriented. And, um, you know, I remember... <laughs> making one mistake. I think it was a typo in an email and just kind of the reaction I got. Um, I will never forget that and try to never make a typo in an email again. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And nowadays we all have Grammarly, so it's okay. Oh, yes. I love Grammarly. Yes. <laughs> I, love Grammarly. I don't know what I'd do without Grammarly. Same um, here. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And then um, where did you go to after law? So then I moved to uh, Solaire, which is now owned by Hitachi. So Solaire is a manufacturing company uh, making air compressors. And, um, you know, it's not the most glamorous of work, but air compressors are everywhere. And I don't know if you've been to Las Vegas, but the Bellagio, uh, you know, they have the, the water show, but our, our compressors are under there to help power the water. So that's just one unique application. Um, so I, I worked there for a few years and then left the company for a year and then came back. And I've been within the Hitachi group family for about eight years now. For everyone who listened at the start, obviously you're now out in Japan. So still with the same company. So at what point did your career go from just doing U.S. national to then doing the international piece? Was that sort of once they got bought out by Hitachi or was that as soon as you went in there and it was suddenly doing um, global communications? Yeah, that's a good question. It was a little bit before Hitachi bought the company. Uh, so there we have global offices. So mostly in Australia, China and uh, the Americas, a little bit of a European presence as well. 
But Hitachi really expanded that uh, when I moved to my current role. And, you know, Hitachi can be a bit complicated. It's a very matrix company, as you can imagine. So there's a lot of layers. But, you know, I was with Solaire. Now I'm with kind of the umbrella company over Solaire. So there's, you know, 13 or 15 different companies under this umbrella now. So, so the scope has grown tremendously. Yeah. And um, yeah. And what does international communications in manufacturing look like? Do you want to talk us through a sort of typical week or, yeah, kind of some of the sort of proactive and reactive work you have to do? Yeah, sure. Um, So it's a bit complicated, as you can imagine, you know, communications is hard to begin with at times. But when you start having a lot of your workforce, you know, working on assembly lines or in a factory and they don't have email or they don't have computers, you know, reaching those employees is very, very different than your office employees. And then you kind of add in the factor of we have, you know, global locations in almost 15 countries around the world. So all the different languages, all the different cultures and customs of all those companies. Um, And, you know, of course, it's not a one channel fits all. I think that's the hardest part. You know, like some of our locations in China, well, their primary communication method is something like WeChat. Versus in the U.S., you know, it might be an intranet or email. And then we have, you know, Thailand locations and they use Line or Japan uses Line. Myanmar uses a thing called Viber. So it's like there's all these different channels and it makes it very difficult to actually reach every single employee. So that's kind of a challenge I continue to grapple with. And what works best in those countries? Is it is it going through their sort of primarily yeah kind of comms routes. I mean, China, it is, you know, do you have like a company WeChat channel? Is that a thing? Um, so not yet, but that is a goal, hopefully in the next one year or so. Um, but right now we're mostly relying on email and then translating to Mandarin to at least put it in their language. Um, but that's, that's the next step is actually doing something like that where we know the employees are at and the employees are reading and expecting the communications to come to them. Yeah, I guess I've always grown up and I'm very used to Western culture and uh, I don't know much about, in fact, I don't know anything around employee engagement in places like China. Um, what's it like, like engaging sort of the workforce there? Do they sort of buy into it? Is it a quite a different relationship to how employees have with a, you know, sort of with a US business or a UK business if you're local? I think a little bit different. You know, I think it's a little bit more complicated. Um, I think if you don't kind of give them the messaging, I think more often than not in China, they'll kind of create their own messaging, if you will. Um, So that's one difficult thing to do. Um, I think they still really appreciate the in-person, you know, like even the town halls, things like that. They're very much looking for those. But, you know, we've come a long way where even a year or so ago, we weren't doing the Mandarin and we were kind of pushing the English, which, of course, you know, that's never going to be as successful. There are a number of people that speak English in China, but not the majority. So we're kind of taking baby steps to really get to the level that they're expecting. 
Yeah, no, nice. Yeah. And you have to do the local translation for all the different countries you operate in as well. Yes, we're not there yet. <laughs> um, right now, the focus is on English, Japanese and Mandarin. Uh, so three languages. But again, over the next year or so, I'm hoping we can expand that. Um, but it's it's many different languages. So I think we have to focus on, you know, the key ones and understanding uh, where the biggest bases of our employees are. But otherwise, it's going to be difficult because it is so many languages. That's one of the challenges of global communications. And in Japan, culturally, yeah, do they are they quite similar to China in terms of, yeah, they love their sort of in-person town halls or yeah, kind of what works best there? Yeah, I think the town halls are important. Um, email, I think even is still pretty good to them. Uh, for our primary method in Japan, we use an intranet or like a communications portal. Um, but they react a lot to the stories, you know, commenting, liking. And we even have kind of a channel for our CEO, Yammer or Vibe now, I guess it is. Um, but it's it's interesting how many employees like to go on there and kind of interact with the content. That's nice. Yeah. And I think a lot of UK and US managing directors would love the same engagement levels from from their workforce in those countries, wouldn't they? <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. I think they're probably a little bit more engaged in Japan than maybe North America, maybe because there's just so much more communications in North America, I feel like, than Japan, at least that I've seen. That's true. I think, yeah, we are just constantly bombarded, aren't we, in the UK and the US. And um, yeah, kind of hard to make an impact amongst all the noise, right? You're competing against many things. And what's it like on the external comms front? I had a guest on here just before Christmas, a lady called Madeline Little, who used to run APAC comms for JLL, the real estate business. And I remember her telling me a story of sort of when it comes to PR in Japan, and press packs, she'd have to go down to a government building. There would be like a brewery for the real estate industry. And then you would physically post your press releases, which I thought was so, so alien to UK comms. Yeah. So I personally haven't seen anything like that. But the, the method to PR is very different. Um, and this is something I'm trying to tackle with my team over the next year or so too. But right now it's quite reactive. You know, it's just if we have a new product or a new service releasing, then we kind of do a press release. But the idea of the proactive pitching or trying to find stories or angles, you know, it's, it's not there yet in Japan uh, versus, you know, what I was accustomed to in the U.S. It's, you know, creating that editorial calendar a year in advance, always finding the angles, the pitches. Um, so it's, it's just it's a very different ballgame. And, um, you know, a lot of the targets, too, are most of the newspapers. You know, like Nikkei is the biggest one in Japan, um, but there aren't so many publications, like even vertical publications. Um, that was something big for us in the U.S. as a manufacturing company. Um, oh, so yeah, the amount the, of trade press. Yeah yeah, 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 trade press. Totally. That's a huge target for us, but that's even not really there in Japan. So I think you nailed it. It's just it's a totally different ball game in Japan. Not like even Japan is a is a small, tiny, just emerging economy, right? It's a, it's a global powerhouse, yet the 
yet the comms and the media space and structure is so different. I think you're totally right. And I, I've noticed that a lot since coming to Japan, just the idea of communications and kind of the maturity of it is drastically different than, you know, the U.S. and what I've seen in Europe. And um, I, I like doing some of that kind of research to see how it compares to other nations. And, uh, you know, recently, like Spencer Stewart, they had the study about how many CCOs there are in the U.S. And it was 410 of the top Fortune 500 all have CCOs. So a couple of weekends ago, I looked at the top 20 companies in Japan. And out of those 20, only one has a chief communications officer. And that's Toyota, the biggest company. So it's just, it's interesting when you look at these hundreds of billions of dollars companies, but they don't have that yet. Yeah, it's interesting in the UK as well, where, you know, the UK probably sits somewhere roughly in the middle. And, you know, actually the far more common C-suite position here is uh, CMO, and then communications would report up into that. Changing a little bit, but yeah, it's funny how, yeah, kind of different markets just have the different power weightings and balance. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at Hitachi Limited itself, um, there's no CCO yet. And the top of communications reports into HR. So kind of similar to what you see. Um, and, you know, when I was looking at some of the other top companies, you know, one of the top three largest companies in Japan, um, looking at all the things he oversaw. So it's not just communications, but like he was also overseeing uh, sustainability and quality and legal and compliance. Uh, so it's interesting how they group it all together. You know, comms teams obviously have to work closely with legal and compliance. But in the UK or the US, yeah, you'd never have them in the same team. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's really interesting to see. I'm hopeful for, you know, maybe in the next five or 10 years, Japan will start to realize the value of it being its own function and, you know, having a seat at the table like the other functions. Mm, Yes. It would be an interesting one to keep an eye on, certainly. Although quite a conservative culture, so it may take a bit of time, but yeah, hopefully it'll get there. I hope so too, yes. I'll keep doing my best, personally. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and keep asking for that kind of job title change and, uh, yeah. <laughs> I will do my best. <laughs> yes. no, great. And sort of with a nod to looking at that global picture, what do you think works best when you're looking at a global communication strategy? How do you go about tackling it? Yeah, I think the key is probably understanding your audience. And because it is so different in each region, you know, even internally, as I was mentioning earlier with employees, but externally as well, um, just it, it's not easy to create just one one strategy, if you will, you almost have to have different for each region and really customize it to that area. Um, so I think it's it's a difficult thing and you have to kind of prioritize what regions are the priority when you have, you know, offices or employees or customers in so many different regions, um, understanding where they are at and what the priority and what the focus should be. 
You personally sort of drawing or mapping that out, do you have like a comms grid? What do you use? Do you, is it all just stored up in here? <laughs> uh, well, no, no, no. There's, there's a little bit, there's a little bit on paper, of course. Um, but I feel like it's constantly changing, right? You know, it's not just setting it and forgetting it at the beginning of the fiscal year um, and just refining as we go. I think that's an important piece too is, of course, you always have learnings um, and, you know, if there are mistakes made along the way, of course, we change gears as needed. Um, but it's really important to be a bit flexible to have the most success. Yes, I think, yeah, the ability to be agile and um, and pivot and tack is really crucial because, as you say, yeah, you can have your comms calendar in place with key dates or holidays or whatever it is penciled in, but then something happens one day and um, the news agenda or the news cycle changes and you have to pivot, right? You're exactly right. And I think we're seeing, you know, more of those challenges and more of those crises coming up and such that we have to uh, not just be in a position to react to, but in a position to be more defensive about it too, as you know, the, the expectations of stakeholders are rising so much. And, you know, it's do we say something about this issue or do we not? Or how do we react to it? Um, so I think just the whole dynamic of being in the communications field has changed so much, even in the past three or five years. I'm sure you, you see that a lot too, but it's just it's an interesting time. Yeah, speaking to all of my candidates, clients, hiring managers, um, I guess probably the easy way to put it, probably the geopolitical, societal impact on a communications function has been huge really quite something and um you know lots of stakeholders particularly in western countries sort of now almost expect companies to take a stand or to comment on various geopolitical societal issues that you know really don't have a huge amount to do with the core business <laughs> but they're still expected to say something i think you're exactly right and we're seeing that more and more and um, i think this year especially with all the elections taking place and um a majority of um, kind of the GDP, you know, having elections this year and just the impact that's going to have. It's it's going to be a really interesting year, I think. And do you find in your role, are there sort of countries or regions where you find, you know, there's more pressure to say something or to or or to have an opinion on something versus others? I think to an extent, yes. Um, more so probably uh, the Americas and Europe, certainly, especially about sustainability um, in Europe. You know, we're getting a lot more questions about our products and services and what kind of impact they have. Um, so I think that's a big one. Um, DEI, other topics like that in the U.S., um, we also see more pushback in the U.S., you know, it's interesting when we run some of our social media campaigns and some of the comments that come in, um, you know, people are not afraid to voice their opposition to things like DEI in the Americas. But at the same time, we find a lot of our employees and just general stakeholders are looking for that, especially, you know, when choosing a company. Um, if, you know, a candidate is looking at companies side by side, 
they may choose the company that takes a stronger position on it. So we're not backing down by any means, but we're just seeing more opposition to it. No, yeah, that, that's true. It's uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a juxtaposition, isn't it? You you know, you have all of the yeah, I guess you have all of the data and opinion that says internally or from an EVP perspective, it's the right thing to do. But then, yeah, you know, you have the likes of end wokeness on on X and Musk, uh, all all pushing back quite hard, right? Yes, absolutely. But then there's Mark Cuban. I don't know if you saw that, but he kind of stepped in and. Uh, you know, told Elon Musk that things like DEI are the right thing. So there's always both sides, I guess. It's just an interesting one, isn't it? I think how the pendulum swings back and forwards in places like the US and Europe. And I'm guessing in in other cultures like in Asia, I guess there's less appetite for it or there's just less pressure on companies to to say something. I think maybe it's a mixture. Um, Speaking for Japan, you know, because that's probably where I have the most experience now. Um, the the understanding of things like DEI is very different in Western cultures. Um, I'm finding that when people talk about DEI in Japan, it's more about either women or non-Japanese, but there's not as much focus on things like, you know, sexual orientation or religion or other things. Um, so there's n- maybe not as much understanding. So thereby, I think there's not as much emphasis or expectation of, um, you know, employers to bring that up. But I, I think there's some change to that. I, I think especially some of our younger employees are paying more attention to it and kind of appreciate that. Um, but maybe more of the, the older generation or the people who've been in the workforce for a while, there's not as much empathy or understanding of it. I guess it's fascinating with those sort of global sunglasses on and, and looking at the whole picture and how it moves. In terms of storylines or types of content or campaigns that work well globally or even maybe things that work best in different regions, uh, how do you find that? So by that I mean you know, how in the UK and the US a lot of corporate communications now lands well if it has a bit of a storyline behind it or there's that human personal element to the story. Whereas you mentioned earlier, you know, I think in Japan around press releases, a lot of it is quite product focused. So how does that vary, do you find, between regions? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, Japan is still more focused on the hardware or the software, right? The products or services. But outside of that, and even China, I think, is very different than Japan. They're more open to the human angle Um, more of the even sustainability or the CSR type of stories or narratives. Um, I think those go over very well. And then similarly in Europe and the Americas, same thing. You know, it's more about the the human behind the hardware or the software or what good the company is doing. Um, But one consistent thing that even does well in Japan are more of the CSR type things. Our employees and external stakeholders are very receptive to CSR and, you know, they get engaged in some of our activities. So that's kind of one common thing we found very well received globally. CSR, even more so than the sort of ESG or sustainability piece, is the the thing that you can trust across the globe that will be fine. Absolutely. Yes. So it's interesting to learn these different things about 
all the different regions because going in, you know, it's it's tough to know what will stick or what won't. No, but it's quite nice to know. Um, yeah, no, everyone has a heart, no matter where you are in the world. And the CSR bit, you know, resonates. Exactly, exactly. And also quite reassuring. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Restores some faith in humanity sometimes. Yeah, no, exactly, which is great. No, nice. And on the flip side of that, is there anything that you would advise people not to do or things to avoid? Not particularly. Um, I mean, I think just the key is, again, understanding your audience as best you can. Um, you know, I haven't run into anything too massively destructive. Um, I mean, just like I mentioned, just the the DEI is kind of coming up more as opposition in the Americas, but, you know, don't stop that. Of course, um, there's just as many people are opposing it, just as many people are looking for it, if not more. Um, so, you know, we can never back down on things just because there are a few strong voices. No. And I think, you know, yeah, particularly on those sorts of topics, I think as long as you're, yeah, yeah it's, I guess as long as your key stakeholders are on board with the message, great, green light it. So, you know, if a if a random popular, you know, kind of Twitter or X channel is pushing back against it, but hey, you know, they're not your employees or they're not your customers, <laughs> you know, you don't you, you you don't actually need to listen to it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And as long as the actions that your company is taking you know, behind the scenes, align with that. And it's not just fluff or empty narrative. You know, I think that's that's another thing too. And I think, you know, we'll see that next month a lot, right? With International Women's Day and certain things where a lot of companies come out of the woodwork, but, you know, come to find out there's not much behind it. Oh God, yeah. I can just picture the International <laughs> Women's Day pushback already, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like what about Wednesday? Yeah. Oh god, I can just see it already. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Get the popcorn ready. <laughs> yeah. Oh joys. Oh the joys. Um just thinking about your global experience again as well. You know, you must have worked for some for some great MDs and some great CEOs. Um who's been your yeah, kind of who's been your favorite CEO to work for and, and why? Yeah, that's a good question. Um I think like most communications professionals, I've certainly had my time of working for some not so good CEOs and some good CEOs. Um, but definitely my current CEO in my role is um, by far the best. Uh, you know, I think not all companies and not all CEOs understand the importance of communications, or it's just kind of seen as a cost center versus more a strategic driver of the business, but my current CEO, he really understands and supports communications and he participates in communications and the amount of time that he dedicates to, you know, in-person meetings with employees and town halls, you know, not just in Japan, but around the world and just very supportive and, um, you know, really respects the opinions that I have or the ideas I bring to the table. That's not something you find all the time. Um, so I'm really fortunate to work for a good, good leader right now. Obviously he lives in Japan, but is he Japanese himself? Or? 
He is Japanese, yes, um, but half of his career he's worked in the U.S. as well. Um, so I think he has a lot of the experience and kind of that the Western side of the business, but also the Japanese side. So it's a good combination. Good that he's, uh, yeah, you know, kind of still embraces communications in a, yeah, you know, coming from a country that, yeah, it's probably perhaps not quite as developed as we've already previously discussed. So, yeah, no, great. And you mentioned the town hall thing. Yeah, is it very much the, yeah, you know, kind of, would you say it's the, is it the leadership visibility piece that that you think is probably the standout bit that really works? I Yes, I think so. The visibility, of course. Um, and just, you know, it's not just the one-way communication, though, too. He really is open to the dialogue, uh, you know, wants to hear, whether it's good or bad feedback, he wants to hear that directly from the employees to try to make it a better workplace or try to, you know, have an even brighter future for the company, things like that. So just the receptiveness to the employees, that's not something that is always so common in CEOs as well, at least in my experience. And the receptiveness, is that... um... Yeah, is that sort of in-person feedback he gets given or is that employee engagement surveys? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, As Hitachi, you know, we do an annual survey every year. Uh, So I think, you know, he gets pages, if not hundreds of pages of feedback that he personally reviews. Uh, You know, it it brings out the the positive and the negative of everyone. Um, But you know, the in-person dialogue too, just, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be a town hall meeting. It can just be a a round table or some other casual chat where he tries to get those ideas from the employees. And even in Japan, you know, where I find it's a bit more conservative, you know, maybe employees aren't as, uh, you know, they don't necessarily give their feedback as openly as maybe other cultures more of the indirect communication but i think even still they they give feedback so i think maybe that's the level of trust or comfort that he's built up with employees um, but it's really really encouraging to see yeah so some of the softer stuff there you made a nod to really important i mean i think of the companies that i've worked for and CEOs and MDs who have been well liked and respected you know, it's, it's even the little things you know they've you know kind of when they come into the office you know they take the time to say hello to everybody and uh, you know just kind of have a little chat for 30 seconds with you know kind of random people in different teams um, you know little things like that gets a lot of buy-in and you know it doesn't need a formal comm strategy or an employee engagement survey to tell you that right? Yes I think you're exactly right it's kind of you know, coming out of the office and, you know, coming out of those four walls and really making yourself visible and the same thing, you know, he'll walk around the floors here and there and just casually talk to employees, but it really helps, you know, tear down those walls to a small extent. Um, I think a lot of employees feel, especially in Japan, you know, where hierarchy is very, you know, still very important. So when you have that big of a gap, even those small steps help you know, make that a little bit smaller. It's a slightly random question, um, but a small one here. Just intrigued. What is it like in Japan now with the sort of return to office 
hybrid working is there such thing as hybrid working in japan or is everyone back in five days a week yeah that is a good question and it's been one of the most surprising things to me since i came to japan um, i didn't think the hybrid thing would really stick uh, but a lot of employees are working hybrid i mean a lot of employees they still come in the office don't get me wrong um, there's still a good contingency that come in every single day, but there's also equally as many that, you know, come in just a couple days per week or maybe one day per week or, uh, so that's been a huge change in Japan. I think something that a lot of managers are grappling with, they're used to, you know, seeing their employees day to day and now they can't, they don't have that, <laughs> you know, direct oversight. I remember my first graduate job for global business and I can always remember someone talking about the Japanese office and how, yeah, you wouldn't leave until your boss left. You know, it was literally like that, that sort of culture. So like if your boss was working late, the whole team was working late. But yeah, it's interesting that now, yeah, kind of they also embraced hybrid. Yeah, times are changing. And, uh, you know, I kind of heard about that before I came to Japan as well. I haven't seen that as much. I think maybe that has changed in recent years, but certainly people still work very long hours in Japan. And, uh, you know, and if I'm in the office on a Friday, the latest I'll ever stay is 7 p.m. Then, you know, that's it. But at 7 p.m. on a Friday, you'll still see a lot of people in the office. So it's very interesting. That's a good work culture, that. And, um, yeah, and a lot of UK and US bosses... <laughs> could probably think that gen x would work like that hey they'd love it <laughs> yeah yeah well i was used to in the u.s you know on a friday at 3 p.m or so most people are cutting out right they're just, oh yeah okay, just let, kind of, let yeah, me go yeah, for the kind weekend. of wind down for the weekend yeah, oh yeah, for yeah. sure yeah it's a yeah, little bit it's oh, funny oh great um what's been your what's been your favorite or most memorable comms campaign that you've that you've run yeah, I think one was probably when I was at Solaire the first time. Um, well, no, sorry, actually the second time because it was the COVID time. So it was around 2020 and, you know, everyone was kind of adapting to what's going on. You know, everyone's working remotely. Before that time, you know, not a lot of people worked remotely at my company at all. So we were trying to find a way to engage our employees and we worked with our agency to come up with kind of this campaign uh, more durable together and created a video and um, just some other things too. But it, you know, it was a really successful one. And even some employees are still using this hashtag I see on LinkedIn sometimes, you know, years later. Um, but I think it was a good way to bring employees together, find kind of a common ground, a common platform. Um, but it was just a really positive thing. Um, so kind of an internal campaign, but it went over really well. And, you know, during that difficult time. Um, remind me, what was the hashtag? Uh, so the hashtag was more durable together. And it kind of stemmed off of the value proposition of Solera and the products being, you know, reliable, durable, and highly performing. So it tied into that, but how we brought our employees together. Yeah, certainly like if I was building anything, I definitely want all of my components to be that. For sure. Yeah, it was just a positive thing in that difficult time. Yeah, yeah. 
and what was the incentive behind it? Was everyone just yeah, sort of sharing little anecdotes and stories and photos and to a small extent, yes. And I think I remember that the top message that was sent out from the CEO at that time. You know, usually there's only a couple people that respond or you know, if there's any kind of error, people usually point that out. But there were so many positive responses of people that replied to that particular message. So I think it really resonated with employees. And it was just, you know, really reassuring moment. Yeah, no, I can imagine. No, I can imagine. And um, yeah, it says something when it's still being used now, years later. Exactly. Yeah. Never expected that would happen. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, great. Yeah, yeah, got a really nice one. That's really cool. And I guess my final question, what's been your favorite country to to live and work in? Sure. Um, Well, so Japan is only the second country I've lived in outside of the U.S. Yeah, but you've traveled a lot, haven't you, as well, right? Traveled a lot, yes. Um, As far as traveling, I think probably Singapore is my favorite country I've ever been to. Uh, It's just very, very clean, very modern, um, just, you know, very expensive, but also a very nice city. So for some reason, I've always really loved Singapore. No, I love Singapore. It's a real, um, it's a real sort of gateway between Western and Eastern cultures as well. Exactly. Yes. You know, you can live and work there, but a lot of global businesses have a presence and but at the same time, yeah, you get a lot of that Eastern culture too and um yeah, and great food. Yes, exactly. Anything you can want you can find there. Great. It's been absolutely wonderful having you on, Stephanie. Yeah, I kinda of really enjoyed our chat and yeah, some really interesting insights. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to yeah, kind of plug or have you got any events coming up? Nothing for me to share. I just really appreciate, you know, the opportunity to come on here and talk with you and communications is changing and really important to every company. So I hope that it continues to be uh, elevated for companies around the world, and especially Japan. Yes, it's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, no, look, and genuinely really good insights. So yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, um, wh- and where can people find you? Is LinkedIn the best place? Yeah, LinkedIn. Absolutely. I'm happy to connect or answer any questions or share any advice that I can, especially for those interested in being an expat. Yes, that would be great. Yeah, like in any sort of insights or little or little tips on moving to Japan as well. I'm sure people would appreciate it. Absolutely. I'd love to. Super. Well, enjoy your, well, it's going to be coming towards the evening now for you. And uh, yeah, it's morning for me, so I need to get a coffee in a minute. Perfect. Thank you so much, Max. Take care. So that was the wonderful Stephanie Roberts. Really hoped you enjoyed our conversation and her insights on global communication strategy and execution. Absolutely loved her insights, particularly uh, on what works both externally and internally from a comms perspective in Eastern cultures. Um, both Japan and, uh, and China uh, are two countries and territories which I don't know a huge amount about when it comes to corporate communications so yeah really love the insights there on on what works well and um yeah and also great to know that certainly csr uh, campaigns and comms works works really well globally no matter the country or the region so that's something that all parts of the world have in common uh, so nice to know that everybody has a heart 
no matter what the press might say, particularly here in the UK. So that was great. Um, and yeah, look forward to hosting you on the next Comms Coffee Club podcast. Thanks once again. And don't forget to like, subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you like to consume it.